Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. It's a total different level of violence if you're actually taking out a knife and plunging it into somebody. That's the trend that I think we're starting to see in D.C., which is really unfortunate. Newsrooms with a hyper-focus on a particular issue, such as immigration, racism, or violent crime, often uncover hidden truths that are not apparent through regular reporting. They may also provide evidence that commonly held beliefs are not often supported by the facts. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Amos Gelb is the founder and publisher of DC Witness, a website that marries journalism with transparency and data to ensure accountability of the criminal justice system in Washington, D.C. Amos, welcome to It's All Journalism. Pleasure to be here. I probably should have started the recording about 15 minutes ago because we had a long conversation about digital journalism, which we both have been in for a while. So tell me a little bit about your background. How, you know, how did you become a journalist? You know, What gets you into data journalism and all that sort of wonderful stuff? I like to say that I got into data journalism because I had a vision, but I was more of an idiot savant who tripped into it. But more to that in a, in a minute. I got into journalism back when I was a student studying in China, and I realized there were a bunch of groups of foreigners who were in China at the time, and I thought I was going to make my life there. And the group that seemed to be having the most fun lived the nicest lives, had the best cars, and seemed to be having the most fun of everybody were journalists. And more importantly, they seem to get paid to stick their nose in other people's business and ask questions, which always had been something that people would yell at me about. So I'm like, oh, what? You can get paid for this? So I came back. I had not done any internships or any kind of stuff through school. I was actually an oarsman. I did crew. And that precluded any kind of summer internships. And long sort of story, a bunch of coincidences and the things that happened. And I ended up at CNN in Atlanta on headline news. And worked my way through CNN, was there for about 15 years, getting to do everything from daily news, from headline news, to talk shows, to investigative, to undercover, to documentaries. I had a lot of fun, gave me a lot of opportunities. I like to think I gave them back as well. Won a whole bunch of awards that are sort of stuck in the garage somewhere. And ended up leaving CNN and working at Nightline and a bunch of other places along the way America's Most Wanted. Did some work for Discovery Times. Essentially, if you go up and down the, the dial, nonfiction, I did stuff in television. Always producer. As I like to say, I have a, a face for radio and, and a voice for print. And I was a producer there and then stumbled into education. And sort of that backed us to where we are today with starting DC Witness about six years ago. Okay. So now, you know, this is not the first venture like this that we've seen in DC. There was one about 10 years ago, but... What's DC Witness's mission? Crime reporting is not new, right? It's been done for eons. From the first time somebody committed a crime, somebody has reported on it in some way. If you want to go back to this later genre, it wasn't really DC. It was out of LA, which did um, an amazing stuff almost 20 years ago now, 10 to 20 years ago. Did some great stuff in the first digital stuff of mapping it. The crime reporting hasn't been there. What is different is... It's not just our systematic way. We have a system. It's a methodology that we would argue nobody else has. And we would also argue that it's our data. It's our mission. 
that nobody has, even those who have come before. And frankly, there's nobody doing what we're doing anywhere else in the country today. The idea is that you can't have change unless you have transparency and accountability. Right? And so our methodology is transparency leads to accountability leads to change. The second thing is that there's a lot of people who report about crime, but nobody is gathering the data. And the data that comes out of the system, so the, and it's the one area of American society today that has awful data. The Fed's data, the UCR, is dependent on contributions, of voluntary contributions. And we're in the court system, and I can tell you about the court system and about what's coming out of the police. And, and for example, do you know that DC police and their body count, homicide count, does not include cop-involved shootings? I, I'm not surprised, but no, I did not know that. Right. So the idea is that the numbers that people are relying on, I wouldn't say are necessarily independent. They're not disinterested. The bigger thing that we would go on to what we're different is that we have the methodology and the idea is that people tend to look at criminal justice. There are two mistakes, right? There's one that is the big criticism right now is one that if it bleeds, it leads, right? Local television, they do the big story, the big murder, the mansion murder, for example, if you remember that a few years ago in DC where a wealthy white family was taken hostage, tortured and murdered. That got all kinds of coverage. What wasn't told was a story at about the same time of this incredible young journalist, black journalist in Southeast Washington in the bad part of town, who stepped off the bus and walked into a, a shootout and somebody used her as a human shield and she died. Nobody reported on that and nobody followed the trial on that. And so what happens in the bleed lead, and I used to think the criticism was a bit unfair, but it's actually fair, is that it gives a warped picture of what crime is. So when I started doing this, I had the ethical dilemma. Who am I to decide whose life is worth telling? Is that really something I am the person who should be the arbiter? So we decided that every homicide would receive the same coverage. The second part of it is that everybody looks at criminal justice as a series of parts. They're the cops and they got a problem, right? And the cops actually are largely blamed for mass incarceration, but people don't realize that the cops don't actually incarcerate anybody, it's the courts. Right? The criminal justice is a system. And people look at each of the individual parts without looking at the system as a whole. So what we decided to do in creating our methodology was to track every homicide, starting with homicide, and we can talk later about how it's expanded, but we started with every homicide and we track every homicide from act to judicial resolution, tracking, gathering every piece of public data and then putting trained reporters in every hearing of every case to both verify and amplify that data, because we all know that in the end, it has to come out in court. The actual final numbers, the final information has to be there in court, or we hope it does. So nobody had that system of every case, every hearing of every case. In addition, there are brilliant things out there. I mean, you can talk about court watch which court watchers across the country, which my hat's off to. These are volunteers who do amazing work. But what they don't have is they don't have a systematic way of making sure that they're covering every case. So they'll throw, they'll be in there, they'll do great work covering it, but it's sort of thrown, essentially thrown at the wall. Right? We've created a methodology that marries the journalism with the data, with the transparency. And what I would argue is that well, we know that in D.C., for example, we have better data than the city has. They've told us. 
right? There are some things they obviously track that we don't, that they have access to, but we're the only ones who are going across the whole system. And here's the thing, right? What is the point? The point is that everybody complains about criminal justice, but there's not good reporting on it. And what's worse is there's worse data. So there are incredibly passionate, well-intentioned folks out there advocating for all kinds of things, but there just isn't the data to make it. You can't fix it unless you can count it. I mean, imagine trying to have dealt with COVID if you didn't actually have numbers. We didn't know what was happening. That is the problem that you have across the country. There's one other thing that is different. There are brilliant pieces of journalism, the Marshall Project, the Trace. Guys doing incredible work, but at 60,000 feet, right? There is no single criminal justice system to be fixed. There are thousands of individual criminal justice systems. We are now in Baltimore, as well as DC. And I got to tell you, at times it's like covering Slovenia and Azerbaijan. They're 45 miles away. And there are things that are so different about them that they're not the same system. And the fixes for DC won't work in Baltimore and vice versa. The thing I like about what you're saying is we can all see when the big, quote unquote, big murder happens because that gets super covered. But that's really only kind of the tip of the iceberg of the larger story about crime in the cities that we're covering. You know, I spent a year covering Washington, D.C., very, you know, as well as one one person could do remotely. And, you know, there was a lot of information coming out of the the police department, but I never felt that I had a really sort of true understanding of causes and uh, sort of the effect on society. And, you know, obviously, as you sort of alluded to, there are people who are trying to change policies and, and make decisions. And if they don't have a, a clear understanding of what the, the real numbers are and maybe what some of the causes are and what the impacts are, it's difficult to make an educated case for why you need to introduce some sort of reform. You've been doing this for, for six years in D.C. And D.C., you know, obviously, it has a reputation of being a very violent city. It has a reputation of having a lot of homicides in a year. You know, over six years, you know, what type of data, how, what does that picture look like, do you think? So in D.C., we track 107 different data categories. In Baltimore, we track 111. And what we are seeing or what we've seen over that last seven, that six years where the number has continually grown every year, this year it's 9% above last year, is that there's a culture of violence coming into the city, whether it's generational or some other. We're non-advocacy, we're non-partisan. We think there are smarter people who are out there who can tell you what this means and what should be done. But what we've seen starting a couple of years ago was that the number one motivation was petty insults and petty disputes. And the second part of that that we start to see was that people were starting to, weren't denying that they had guns, but they were claiming that the streets were so unsafe that they needed guns. And so what you have is you have this cycle of lack of control that a petty argument leads to somebody pulling out the gun while somebody else has to have the gun because they don't know whether the other guy's going to call the gun. And it's this cycle of violence that goes up, which we started yelling about this a couple of years ago. Finally, people are starting to sort of catch on. But what this means is, my view of guns is irrelevant here, but guns aren't the only problem. Because you can, in D.C., if anybody knows D.C., 
we'll cross the bridge from Virginia. So you get rid of all the illegal guns in DC, people will just drive across the bridge and buy a gun illegally out the back of a car and drive it back across the bridge. And then all of a sudden it becomes an illegal gun. So the idea that we're seeing is that there's a cultural violence growing, which actually was the latest numbers that we had, the most startling figure that I saw this, that came out of our data was that in 2020, of the 200 plus homicides, 15 were stabbings. That number doubled in 2021. And that to me is a really frightening thought because it's one thing to get into an argument, pull a gun and pull a trigger. It's a total different level of violence if you're actually taking out a knife and plunging it into somebody. That's the trend that I think we're starting to see in DC which is really unfortunate. It's disheartening in a lot of different ways. I know, I don't know how many press conferences I covered with Mayor Bowser where she, you know, was explaining some homicide. And, you know, the phrase she always said was, well, you know, people in the city are using guns to settle, you know, disagreements. And there never seemed to be any idea beyond that. It was like, well, you know, what can we do if they're going to be using guns to settle disagreements? So there are all these disconnects. Guns are illegal. You can't carry a gun in, you know, in Washington, D.C. Yet so many people have guns. The solution is, is complex, but the starting point is understanding what the problem is and kind of where it comes from. Let me add two things to that, which you're absolutely right, right? So nobody has the data to say that. And it's one thing to say, oh, well, they're settling disputes. Okay, well, you know, there are really smart people out there smarter in this area than we are, right? We're journalists. I'm a recovering journalist. I've got some great journalists working for me. We know how to gather the data, right? And so then there are smarter people to know what to do with it. But there are two other parts to that equation that you're missing is because you don't have the data. In our current binary society, because there isn't the data to look at this, it is becoming binary between either you do alternatives to policing, defund the police or some level of that, or you got to police up. And we know that policing up, it doesn't solve this. But we also know from the data, and I, you know, it's very unfortunate, we got a lot of crap for this. We just did data, right? We don't have any. Right. We don't have any, You're we, just reporting the numbers. We, we got crap because the data showed that the violence interrupting program they used wasn't delivering the kind of results that it claimed to. It seemed, and we're not saying it's caused it, whether it's correlated or caused it, we didn't get into, that it was pushing it out to the other side. But we got pilloried because it's binary, right? And we were viewed as being anti-police alternative, which we're not, right? The reality is, it's anything. It's got to be a combination. But there's no data so that they sort of have this either or. There's also the bigger thing, the bigger thing that our data is showing in D.C. and now in Baltimore, even more in Baltimore, is essentially we're talking about a failure of governance, that the problem isn't just a lot of the things that people are saying. It's that the basic systems just don't work. You can talk about the backlog of cases in D.C. and Baltimore, part of it's COVID. In D.C., it's because there aren't enough judges. You can talk about this bifurcated system where the U.S. attorney is the prosecuting authority in D.C. is unaccountable to the city at all. You have in D.C. where you have 
a jail that continues. Its problems are like, like a COVID virus. They keep mutating, right? And nobody takes responsibility to fix it. The forensic lab is a complete and utter joke in DC. In Baltimore, you have a court system which is impervious. You can't tell what's going on. You've got a state's attorney who makes interesting interpretation of data. She doesn't make up the data. She interprets it differently, but there isn't any, there's no independent data except for hours that we're providing. You've got a mayor in Baltimore who has actually no authority over either the courts, the police, or the state's attorney, and yet the poor guy is getting blamed for everything. We have systems that nobody is looking at because it's what I call the corruption of convention. It's just the way it is. We all know it's that way, but what are you gonna do about it? Well, the answer is something because all these alternative things, that I'm now editorializing, but all the alternative, police alternatives, none of them work or have long lasting effect unless the core functions of criminal justice or public justice work. In Baltimore, the number one cause of homicides is retaliation because there's just no, no faith that the city is going to deal with the person who shot your loved one. So you're going to do it yourself. Yeah. Because of the bifurcated system that you allude to from a political perspective, uh, there are people who benefit from keeping certain structures functioning the way they are. They're able to maintain, you know, rouse up their base. I'm talking both sides. This isn't just a, a one side issue. Rouse up their base, raise money, you know, get reelected, do some things, and then it continues. And so there's no political will or motivation to change things. But I think the type of work that you're doing, I think, is it sort of forces the issue. So you said that you've got people going to every hearing. What data are you, you getting? What, what information are you able to collect that the police and the courts aren't able to collect? Well, it's not necessarily that the courts aren't able to collect it. It's A, do they want to? And B, do they have the systems? And C, even if they do, are they willing to share it? If, for example, in D.C., the police, as soon as they arrest somebody or know who does it, as far as they're concerned, the case is closed, even though the case may not have been prosecuted and the person may have been acquitted. By the way, that's something that journalism does terribly badly. It doesn't ever report on acquittals unless it's a huge case. So people are arrested and there'll be a note that somebody is arrested and charged with a homicide and never says that they're acquitted. <laughs> so we made a policy that every time anybody is acquitted, we automatically go back into every story that we've written about that and put at the top, so-and-so was acquitted of, of the charges, the top of every story. So we don't actually change the story because it's a, what happened along the way. So what are we tracking? Interesting question that you should ask. So we take all the public data, right? And part of it is not just taking the public data, it's verifying it, right? So our count is always slightly off in DC and Baltimore because we track police-involved shootings. We track vehicular homicides, right? Homicide is anybody killed by anybody else, but the police only will count people that they're charging. So there are differences in the way that we count. We're not saying one is better than the other. We explain this, right? We explain this on the website. The other thing is that there's a whole wealth of data, motivation, family support, time from arrest to trial, time from trial to resolution, time from act to plea agreement, plea in versus plea out. 
right? How they plead down. Family support, the police, we track every judge, every police officer, detective involved in the cases. We track prosecutors and defense lawyers, which was amusing because the uh, U.S. attorney was interested in our data as a human resources tool to track how people were performing, which isn't what we, we thought we would be doing, but whatever. So we track a whole bunch of that. I mean, and this sort of gets to a little bit, I think, of why we're part of what led to the conversation here was for essentially four years, five years, we essentially were gathering all this data and just shoving it in a drawer. Because as you you know as well as I do, that it doesn't matter how good that you're reporting in the data, if nobody sees it, it's pointless, it's useless, it doesn't do anything. It's like singing in the shower. And one of the things that we've been able to do now, thanks to the Google News Initiative, was we actually were able to take a look at what we were doing and that data and our processes and we're able to actually say, okay, we're doing all this great work, but to what end? What are we going to do with this data? How are you going to turn this data into something that is valid? And so the whole process that we did with Google Innovation effort was to reimagine how we did what we did and to what end. And, you know, it's one of those moments, and I'm sure you've had these as a journalist, or we talked about it before, is sort of like, what the hell am I doing? And why am I doing it? And do I want to be doing this? And it was sort of that, it was sort of the thing of like, we've been doing this. Why? <laughs> What's the bloody point? Right. And so that was a, a whole series of really interesting conversations that if you look at our website and our database today versus what it was on January 7th, 2020, a year ago, we're, we're a completely different organization. So I'm looking at it right now, and something you alluded to before was that in D.C. You, you expanded from covering only homicides to other crimes. Did you feel that that was something that you'd sort of reached a point? Well, this is something now that we have everything sort of set up through the Google News Initiative, we have a strategy maybe for how we want to present this stuff. Why don't we look at these other areas and see if we can do that that same level of coverage and transparency it was partly that and partly my editor-in-chief came to me and said you know we're seeing a lot of domestic violence we're seeing a, a surprising number of domestic violence cases coming through here and nobody's looking at this and so we now had the systems in place to do it and we had the methodology refined and we took a look at the resources and thought it was something that nobody is talking about, which they're not. Let me give you this number. Between June 1st and August 31st this year, there were 1,250 felony and misdemeanor domestic violent cases that came through DC court, right? Wow, right? And you know, misdemeanor can be everything from a shove to a violation of a protective order to all kinds of things. But I'm calling it the invisible crime because nobody's seeing that. And we were focusing on felonies, but most of the felonies have guns and those people are getting put away. We have some startling data on what happens to domestic violence misdemeanor cases and how essentially you'll spend a couple of weeks in jail maybe and then you'll be out for somebody who has repeatedly violated a restraining order. So this is somebody told to stay away from somebody else and doesn't. 
And so nobody's sort of looking at that. And so my, my editor-in-chief said, we really need to start looking at this. So we started looking at that. In Baltimore, we do homicides and non-fatal shootings because that's currently a bigger concern up there, which is non-fatal shootings. So one of the other issues that you talked about that's on a lot of people's minds is police-involved shootings, violence by police toward suspects or members of the public. You know, how is that sort of figuring in your coverage? If it's homicide and non-fatal shootings, right, in Baltimore, either one is going to be recorded. In D.C., we will record a fatal shooting by the police. Now, we're not saying that it's justified or unjustified, right? I mean, again, we're not a pitchfork charging on either side, right? So that's how we do that, right? It is not a core focus because, you know, D.C. didn't have any this year. So it's not an issue. You know, it's one of the many data points. I mean, frankly, I'm one of these guys who says, yes, the police have huge problems that need to be addressed. But frankly, I just look at this data and we, you go to court and you see that and you see all these people killing all these other people. And frankly, nobody cares. There's a lot of yelling and posturing, but it just keeps... That's unfair. To say that nobody cares is wrong. It's just when we look at what is happening, there's so much posturing and things just aren't changing and the systems are just broken. And there's a once in a lifetime flood of cash that is coming into public systems. So in Baltimore, for example, the Baltimore Police Department is still running its department on Lotus Notes. The courthouse in Baltimore is in such physical disrepair, that the building needs to be shut and renovated. But money isn't going to that because it's not sexy and nobody cares. And the way that the crimes are being reported, if the average person thinks that the police have have apprehended someone, then for them, well, why do we need to put any money in this if we already know who did it, when that's not exactly the case? Right. And And so our belief is that there are so many issues so many stories to be told and so many issues to be done driven by the data. We didn't go into Baltimore looking to do a story about how the system systems are failing. We went in to gather data and realized, oh my God, really? The systems are failing. When we were talking before, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, your expansion to Baltimore, but for the future of, of DC Witness, so Baltimore Witness, what are you hoping to do? There are a couple of things, right? First of all, we want to get this data out. We've been credited, by the way, with changing the conversation because we were talking, the data was showing a lot of the issues. We've been credited in DC by the DC Council with leading the change of the conversation from the homicides, gun violence was a public health issue as much as a criminal issue. I think the data will show if you go through the data and what's causing it. Yes, it's a it's a public health issue, right? And the trauma that comes from it. Our goal of this is to increase the transparency and accountability so that across the system, communities can then be empowered to demand better, that people can understand what is happening in their communities, that, that criminal justice isn't a black hole. And by bringing the transparency, leading to accountability, then there can be meaningful change. 
whatever it is, right? Whatever it is. And then what we're hoping to do is then expand this and bring our unique methodology to other cities. So we would like to be able to have in the next three years, be opening in, th in three other cities and eschewing the New Yorks and the Chicago's and the San Francisco's and the LA's, but go to a place like Atlanta or Detroit or Cleveland or Cincinnati, the cities that aren't quite as prominent, you know, one might call them second tier cities that have issues like this and again, no accountability because nobody's gathering the data and you have bureaucratic competition and ingrained bias in how you gather the data and what you gather it for. Again, not saying that anybody has malice, but it's just the systems as they've been. So the idea is bringing public data to the criminal justice space. And it's this marriage between the journalism and the data. Oh, and by the way, we have an incredibly rigorous internship program, which teaches what well, we thought it would be journalists originally, but it's journalists and pre-law students and public health people, how to go into a courtroom and gather data and how to gather facts and learn what they are and to train these folks, what this is beyond all the noise and beyond the posturing how you gather facts, what's happening in the system, how you write a story, how you gather and how you manage the data. And the idea is that offering the kind of teaching hospital opportunities that is so rare, especially for some of these hardest hit communities where you know the kids aren't gonna get a chance to have the kind of great internships that lead, that are now almost required to build a career. What you're doing, I'm, I'm going to call it punk journalism, and here's, here's my reasoning behind that. When I first heard punk music, it was like drinking pure alcohol. There was nothing that was diluted. There was nothing that was perfumey or, or flowery or, or whatever. It was very straight and direct, and it gave you, you know, that charge that you wanted to have. And you're doing a sort of a pure type of journalism here with your focus on data and with transparency. And I got to tell you, it's, it's exciting. And I think it's what you've been talking about is something that is clearly needed in criminal justice reporting. And there's so many reporters who, who are covering crime who are just not, you know, going as deep as they, they should for a variety of reasons. This is a, a great uh, <laughs> approach to this issue that impacts all of us in, in lots of different ways. Is there anything else you wanted to add to this before we sort of wrap up? Yeah, one of the things we're talking about journalism here and and your podcast and all the stuff that, that you have done, and I'm, I'm sure it's something that you found. We actually were kind of surprised about something. One of the biggest surprises to me was we thought that if we just told the narrative of what's happening in every case, and then we put the data and we provided the data to people to be used as they wanted, we thought people would want that. We thought that was incredibly valuable just to put the data out there, right? Here it is, right? We just gather it, you take it, you do with it as you want. We'll give it to everybody, right? I'll give it to the police department, we'll give it to Black Lives Matter, I don't care, right? It's just data. Let's have a basic foundation for a conversation. I was naive because not only do people not want that, we found two things. One, a lot of folks, I will remain 
I will refrain from saying who, in both public and, and private spheres, they weren't really interested in the data. They wanted data to support their narrative. They didn't claim it was that, but actually a couple of them did. They said to us, essentially, one actually said to us, yeah, we, we don't think your data is supporting what we believe is happening. And we're like, okay, I mean, well, I don't know how you respond to that, right? And the second thing was that those who were interested in it didn't just want the data. They wanted us, or they wanted baked into a pie, not just the information, not just the data, not just the information of what the data says, but then the next stage of what that data means. And then the final stage, which we're not going to go because I don't believe that we're the right people to do it. I personally believe that there is no group of people worth suited to tell people how to solve any problem than journalists. They want us to tell them what the solution is, right? And we, we're not going to go there. But, but we've realized that we now have to process the data and come up with better products out of our data for it to have the impact that we believe it can have. And that was a... I hate to say it's sort of an unjournalistic revelation, right? There were the people you could say, well, they only want what they want to hear. Okay, if you take those aside, the other folks didn't just want the information, they wanted it wrapped up a bit more, which I think goes a lot to a question of back to almost where we began, which is why so many nonprofits have failed because the value of what we do isn't just in our own minds. It can't just be in our own minds. It really has to be. So while staying true to what we do, we have to create, take our journalism, continue to do that, but work out how to do that next stage. And that is that is a process that we're sort of being driven. And again, the GNI grant helped us get there towards that. And now we're as we're processing it, we're going, oh, wow, we, we need to go another step and, and we need to go another step. And that, to me, is the fascinating challenge for us. We have our methodology. We know what we do. But now, how do we leverage that impact? And we're not just the Washington Post. We have actual data that brings transparency. And how do we make that something that people can use? To be glib, I mean, it's it's another example of facts getting in the way of a good story. People want a good story. And I think, you know, doing this podcast and certainly doing this podcast in the last five years has gotten me to look at the thorny issue of the truth. You know, it's the thing that we all strive for and that we aim to do, but sometimes we back away from the truth or we we don't go as far in as we should because we're lazy, because we're scared, you know, what it's not going to benefit us in some way. Yeah, but it also goes to how do we make this sustainable, right? And, and as you said, you guys did better during COVID because local reporting is a premium. And the kind of reporting you're doing was of value. I remember hearing Michael Kinsley talking about the death of local newspapers. And, you know, there's a great, the great journalist, the great editor. He said, can we stop bemoaning the loss of most of these papers? This was almost 20 years ago. He says, most of those papers were dead dogs that should have been put down a long time ago. And I think we have lost the view of what the value is. This is why I'm actually totally bullish on where journalism is going, because you know, not everybody's going to succeed. There's a flood of people entering the space, as you know now. 
who will be gone again because they don't have a model, right? That is going to last. They haven't worked out what their value is to their audience. Our audience, our covering our journalism is incredibly valuable to the people who are using it, but we're never going to get advertising, right? Who's going to advertise on us? Bail bondsmen and funeral parlors? So advertising isn't the way we can go. So we have data. So how do we create the model that supports the kind of work we want to do? Yeah, especially if you're creating data that's not supporting some, you know, educator or, or whatever or thought leader who is, is trying to profess some sort of solution or others. And just to put some of the things you said in context, because this is this came from before we turned on the mics, we talked a little bit about where I work now, which is Patch, which is local journalism. And and I mentioned this before, we kind of grew when many other newsrooms weren't growing during COVID because people valued local journalism because COVID was a, is really a local journalism story. Where do I go to get tested? What restaurant can I not go in? And things like that. So anywho. Amos, I, we could talk for another couple of hours, and, and I'll probably invite you back on at some point to noodle through this a little bit more. I, too, am bullish about journalism, and when this podcast started, I was a bit more of a bomb thrower when it came to everybody who was bemoaning the loss of large dailies and why can't we have large dailies anymore. And then and, and now, to some extent, I say, you know, why bother? There are plenty of other things we could be doing work like that you're doing, you know, work like Patch and, and other local news outlets are doing that are able to identify ways to sustain themselves so that they can do the, the work that is valued. Amos, thanks. Thanks for being on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure and um, look forward to continuing this conversation. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.